0: We're sisters and best friends who live with depression and are committed to encouraging healthy, healing conversations about
1: mental illness. Episodes in this season are made possible by a grant from the Charles E. Kubley Foundation, which is dedicated to bettering the lives of those affected by depression. We are solely responsible for podcast content. Hi, Terry. Hello, Bridget. Today's episode is our
0: season five in review. We're going to kind of wrap it all up. And what a season it was, Terry. Oh, I learned so much. When we started giving voice to depression, we worried that nobody would want to talk to us about their depression. <laughs> That's so not been the case because now we know if we open the doors and we listen with understanding and empathy that a lot of people want to talk and they've never had the opportunity before. Mm-hmm. So I think it's great because they're sharing their stories, they're being heard, they're helping others and maybe those people listening, you know, don't feel so alone during their dark times.
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And the numbers of people who are listening are really growing fast, and it is so rewarding to know that these stories of resilience and hope are being heard and hopefully internalized. In just the first half of this year, twice as many people have listened as did in our whole first year. So we've tripled. I know it's so good. So thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing. And thank you for helping to give voice to depression versus keeping it in the dark where... We know that both stigma and isolation grow.
0: And, you know, that word normalizing, I think, is used a lot. But, you know, it really is making normal, talking Mm -hmm. about it. And that's what we're all doing. Mm -hmm. And it's, um, you know, it's really what needs to be done. So it's exciting. Yes. We began this season um, with two really powerful episodes. Um, Therapists, doctors, mental health advocates, and friends always tell us to raise the white flag and speak up if we need help. But how? Mm
1: -hmm.
0: You know, I mean, how bad does it have to be before you reach out and call somebody? And what do you say when you decide that you want to be doing that?
1: Especially when you're in a really dark and, you know, dismal place. It can be hard to come up with any language or think you're deserving of any help. So we were really grateful to find Sam Dillon Finch, who outlined 10 specific ways to reach out. Because as he said, and Bridget, this is using your word again, we need to normalize asking for help and talking about what that might look like, rather than pretending it's a simple and intuitive thing to do when it is not.
2: And so I started to wonder, you know, what do we even mean when we're asking people to reach out? Because we're all saying it, I know that clinicians, friends, I've heard this a million times of, you know, why didn't they reach out? Or if you need me, just give me a call. But we never really say what we mean when we ask people to reach out, like what do we specifically want them to do? Um, Sometimes the biggest obstacle is that people really don't know what they need. And the expectation that people should when they're in such a dark space is really like asking someone who doesn't know how to swim, like you throw them in the water and you're like, I don't know, just swim. And so allowing people to just name that, to say, I don't know what I need and to just express like, I'm not sure what to ask for, but I do know that I don't want to do this alone can be really, really powerful and letting loved ones know, yeah, I'm a little lost right now, but just having you here with me is important to me
1: it's actually beautiful. Mm. If someone said that to me, you know, I I would so be there and and I could see myself saying it to someone, but I I never in my entire life have. Right. And
2: we don't see it modeled. I can't think of a time when someone said that to me, Mm. but I do know that if someone did, I would be there in a heartbeat. I think it's just finding those words can be so difficult.
0: Sam, who wrote the list after losing a close friend to suicide and wondering why they didn't reach out says that if there's one thing he hopes that you take away from his list, it's that you need to ask people to check in with you.
2: Um, it's really not that big of an ask. And I think that one thing that intimidates people when they're thinking about reaching out for help is that they don't want to ask too much of people. It can be anything from send me a selfie every day just to check in It'd be nice to see your face or let's text each other every morning or every evening to see, you know, what our plans are, or how we're going to take care of ourselves. Or It doesn't even have to be a big dramatic thing. And the article, I describe it as like buckling your seatbelt when you get into a car. It's like one extra line of defense. If things do start to get really difficult, people won't hear about it at the last possible minute. They'll have a sense of what's coming because you've been checking in with them, hopefully, and staying connected. And sustaining a connection is such a big part of staying mentally well, or at least survival, isolating yourself is really one of the worst things you can do, I think, in a mental health crisis.
1: We really cannot recommend these episodes enough. I mean, who does not need one extra line of defense? We believe the information in them is important, and it also isn't something we've seen spelled out anywhere else. So uh, Mm -hmm. please listen to and share them. The two episodes are called How to Reach Out, parts one and two.
0: As Sam's second episode was posting, both Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade ended their lives, putting suicide on the front page and front of mind for many of us. Since its recommended practice is always to offer a way to access help when discussing any triggering topic, we profiled National Suicide Prevention Lifeline and talked with its director, Dr. John Draper, about both how a call can truly help and the fact that the vast majority of people who consider suicide get through the crisis alive.
3: While certainly a lot of problems may seem insurmountable, what we know is when a person feels like they're not doing it alone, they feel like they can perhaps get through it another day and then another day after that, and before you know it, they're feeling a lot better. In fact, what we found with the research on the lifeline is that not only does a caller feel better by the end of the call, but when they followed up with the caller three weeks later, they felt better still. Um, and I think that's just a function of the crisis state, that that when you are really in that dark place and you feel like there's no way out, there's also nowhere else to go but up. And so when you begin to open a few lights in that darkness, um, the light spreads over time as you begin to to come out of crisis. So uh, that's just, I think, the nature of crisis states and why it's important to have somebody connect with somebody in that moment.
1: You can hear more from Dr. Draper in his episode titled National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. And that number, by the way, whether you need it or someone else, is 800-273-TALK- 800
0: Because so many of the comments that we read and heard about the celebrity suicides included comments like, there were no signs, or it was a selfish act. To get a different and inside opinion on the topic, we reached out to attempt survivor Mark Hennick whose TED Talk on suicide is one of the most watched in the world. More than 5 million viewers found his insights worthwhile, and we thought you would too. In the first of his two episodes, we looked at what we called suicide myths and misconceptions. We looked at seven common comments, including the wide-held belief that people who are suicidal want to die.
4: Yeah, yeah, this is probably, it's probably the most common myth that I hear uh, that people really want to die. Uh, and usually because the person themselves believe that, the person themselves argue that, that they that they want to die, that they need to die. Uh, I think that's a myth because we know that 90%, more than 90% suicide suicidal who are depressed at the time of their death, uh, who have depression, either diagnosed or not, or sorry, have a mental illness at the time of their death, and it's usually depression. Um, that's important because that has a way of limiting your view that, that, um, it, it, not only limiting your view, it also uh, uh, has all kinds of other impacts on you. It makes you tired. It makes you irritable. It, it can lead to other health problems. So really what the person doesn't want to do is is deal with that kind of existential dread anymore, that pain anymore, that um, uh, difficulty that comes with that struggle. Uh, it's not necessarily that they want to die. It's that they don't want to live that way, I think.
1: And Mark would know. Uh, we asked him, in the next episode to share his lived experience, and that episode is called A Suicide Attempt Survivor's Story of Hope. It can be so, so hard in depression's darkness to believe anyone or anything that says, it will pass, there is hope, hang on. But when you hear it from someone who has been there, who knows just how hopeless life can seem and how few options depression leads you to believe you have, the words have a credibility and empathy that's hard to ignore. We hope you will listen to the full episode. One point in it that we really want to emphasize is how society can do a much better job at prevention.
4: Almost everywhere, it seems like, the community's approach to suicide prevention uh, is to building fences and means restriction, it's called, on bridges uh, and putting phones on bridges. You know, that's a necessary part of the system, I guess, but we need to be preventing people from ever going there in the first place. Because once you open up that cognitive pathway in your mind, once you unlock that way of thinking it's very difficult to unthink about suicide. You know, it's, I've long since achieved a good place in my recovery, and I've learned so much from these experiences. But I can't forget that I used to be suicidal. So I think that's where we need to be doing the real intervention, is to be helping kids, and therefore their parents, because they're their first kids' first teachers, uh, to better understand these issues, uh, to realize that medication and hospitalization and therapy, those are all important tools we need to have downstream. But we can actually do things way further upstream, like teaching kids about their emotions, for example, how to name and label their feelings, uh, how to cope with stressors and emotional distress in more uh, constructive ways. These are all really basic skills that we can teach kids from a very early age that can help to avoid these things much further downstream.
0: Mark mentioned hospitalization and therapy and medication, all as important tools. And in our next episode, titled Genetic Testing for Personalized Depression Meds, we looked at how DNA testing is finally being applied to mental health patients to help pinpoint the prescription that's most likely to work for your specific biology, potentially avoiding a lot of wasted time, frustration, and possible danger. Here's Dr. Dan Dowd from GenoMind.
5: So when it comes to comes to treatment for things like depression, anxiety, the the medications that are usually taken, it often takes 8 to 12 weeks to figure out whether they work or not, and that's a long time to wait to see if a medication is going to work um, if it's, if it's side effect related, you usually know that pretty quickly, you know, within the first week or two, you'll know that you can't tolerate a medication, but before you, you, you officially give up on a medication, the recommendation is that you go at least, uh, eight to 12 weeks. And so we, we want to minimize that as much as possible. And, Uh, genetic testing is one way that we can minimize that so if we can identify people ahead of time who are more likely to have side effects to certain drugs or more likely to have a response rate or better yet a remission rate to certain drugs well then that's useful information
1: That episode also features Megan Amaya, who detailed and shared her struggles with the wrong meds and her recovery aided by the correct ones identified by that test.
0: In the next Giving Voice to Depression episode this season, address the fact that a lot of men see their symptoms of depression as signs of weakness. That is one reason why they don't talk about their struggles so much or seek a doctor for treatment. It's also a factor in why... Their suicide rates are higher than women's. But in what we call depression and manhood, Rorar Asmar, a bodybuilding, football-playing business owner in Washington, D.C., puts a totally different spin on it. He says depression helped make him a man.
5: I learned that pain,
4: sorrow, anger, and sadness are a part of life. Emotions don't care if you are a man, or a woman, or a household pet. For the first time, I could accept and acknowledge my weaknesses and my pain. Coming out about my depression was one of the most freeing and courageous things I have ever done. No longer am I silent or fearful about who I really am. I am comfortable and confident enough in myself to accept and face my demons. I'm no longer ashamed of my depression. I can now step in front of my mental illness and accept it as a part of me instead of always living in its shadow. And I'm here to tell you, fellas, to be bold and fearless about who you are. Be strong enough to admit your pains. Be courageous to acknowledge your struggles, regardless of how unmanly they may seem. Depression affects six million men per year.
1: That episode is another reminder that depression is an illness, not a chink in your armor or a flaw in your character or a challenge to your manliness. It's just a part of who you are just like it's a part of who we are.
0: In the next episode, the challenge of self-forgiveness after a suicide attempt, John reminds us that the journey of recovery, seldom a straight line, requires effort and patience and to remember that every step forward is a victory.
1: Um, It
4: made sense to me just as a rational thinker that, you know, if you've spent 35 years not liking yourself... um, it's not going to change overnight. It's going to take time to undo all of that damage and create a new sense of self. And I'm okay with that. I'm quite willing to allow the time to happen. Um, so yeah, it could be that that the time for self forgiveness is not here yet. Um, and which is fine. I'm comfortable with that. Um, It would be nice to know if there's a magical pill, but uh, I'm okay with uh, looking and seeing if I can find my
1: own. And finally, we took a look at the mask, something everyone who lives with depression is probably aware of. It's that smile we paste on our faces, or at least the pain we take off of them, when we go out into the world and interact in spite of how we're feeling and what we're thinking inside. Andrew did a really good job explaining how the mask can be both a blessing and a curse.
3: So if you think the mask, the mask is something you use to hide behind. If you constantly hide from it, if you use that mask to kind of hide yourself from the world and put up that good front, you're not really acknowledging what you struggle with. The more I hide behind the mask, the more I'm letting that front be me, and I'm not dealing with my reality. If, if I recognize it's this is a falsehood, this is what I'm dealing with, I just got to wear the mask today, that's fine. But if I just don't look at and don't recognize and acknowledge what I'm dealing with, that's when it starts to feed on itself.
0: And that is one of the greatest values of sharing one's personal experience and lessons and perspective. First, we learn that we're not alone that we're not crazy, and that some other people get it. And that can be so comforting to hear, and over time, so deeply comforting to believe.
1: Oh, nice. If you have any ideas or perspectives that we have yet to explore and that you'd like to hear in future episodes, please let us know. You can reach us directly, Terry, T-E-R-R-Y, or Bridget, B-R-I-D-G-E-T, at givingvoicetodepression.com.
0: And if you've had any personal experience with ketamine, reach out to us on our website because I'm really curious.
1: We'll be taking a two-week break now between seasons. We'll be coming back August 21st with a new episode, and we will begin with the story of a first responder who has dealt not only with her own depression but has had to interact with uh, the results of other people's as they have uh, given up hope and taken their lives.
0: Thank you so much for listening. I can't believe we've been doing this for five seasons. And I hope we continue because I find this whole community deeply, like reassuring is the word I want to say. It just feels good to be a part of a community. Thank you. Thank you.
1: And thanks for being here, Bridge. Love you, Terry. Talk to you soon.
0: We hope that these shared stories bring out a little more understanding or help people articulate their experiences of depression a little more clearly or more freely.